if this is your first time joining us, or maybe you've been here a few times this year, uh, we are doing a year of biblical literacy, and we are trying to teach through the major themes of the Bible. And one of the major themes of Scripture is the wisdom literature, which is uh, the book of Job, the book of Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, and then, of course, some uh, intermittent psalms as well. And so um, we're doing this for about four to five weeks. We're kind of still trying to figure that out. But last week, Mike Wilcox, um, who is, um, he has his degree in um, theology or a master's in theology. Is that what you have, Mike? I can't remember. Masters in theology. Uh, He's also a clinical counselor. And so we just thought it would be so appropriate for him to come and share about Pain and suffering, because the Bible has a lot to say about that. And so he did that last week, and now he's going to come and share with us kind of part two of this, which is how we approach God in pain and suffering. And so uh, would you give Mike a warm welcome this morning? Well, after last week, uh, I'm grateful that some of you came back again. Um, If we can get some lights, I could actually see who was out there. A few familiar faces. I think some of you weren't here last week, which might be why you accidentally showed up this week, not knowing what you were getting into. Uh, One of the things that we... Uh, found ourselves realizing last week was that Jesus himself promised us in this world you will have trouble. Uh, It's non-negotiable in this life, in this world. uh, Things are messed up in this world. If you haven't noticed that, you've been wandering around with your eyes closed. Uh, Things are quite possibly messed up in your own life. Uh, Maybe in your family experience, relationships, uh, medical challenges, mental health concerns. There's all kinds of things. We're really, if we think about it, not surprised that Jesus would just observe in this world you will have trouble. And last week we began to explore, well, how? How do I live well with pain and suffering? And this week we want to take that a step further and say, well, my goodness, in the middle of that, then how possibly can I connect with God in pain and suffering? Uh, because there are times when the the waves of pain just wash over me, and I feel like I'm drowning in it. Um, I feel like I'm overwhelmed. I feel like I can't make it another step. I feel like I could scream. I feel like I could just give up. And all these things are happening. I can remember when Joan and I were doing uh, missionary work in Indonesia uh, at the end of the 1980s and going into the 90s. And we'd been there nearly eight years. And we had our first year from hell. Uh, we, We have a number of these. So if you, again, 
we're open to converse and if you want to ask more. Now, I don't know why God would come and allow and work in our lives such that after we'd given up everything, sold everything, stored a few irreplaceable personal items, went overseas, done his work, sweated and labored, that he would allow us and our very close friends to be attacked. I don't know why, in the middle of doing his work, my best friend was stabbed and almost died. I don't know why, when I had been doing, and my family had been doing everything God wanted, he allowed the very next day after my friend was stabbed, three guys with knives to attempt to break into our house when our 12-year-old son was alone. I don't know why in all of that he threatened and frightened and allowed me to feel those things in the experiences we went through. I don't know why he chose not to let us know that there was such a thing as PTSD and so that we toughed it out on our own. I don't know why then, eight years later, when first our youngest son and then our middle son out of three developed serious mental illnesses, were often hospitalized. I don't know why Nick, our youngest son, tried to take his own life. I don't know why my mother died relatively young for her family history five weeks ago. I don't know why my dad had surgery yesterday for a simple procedure and had to go home without seeing the expected outcome for that surgery. I don't know why my oldest son has a neurological disease so that at 35 years old he walks with a walker because he has very little sense of balance or muscle control. You see, if I stop for a second, I can feel the waves washing over me. And I can sit here and sing, and, and when we sing in this place, I, I feel it deeply, and I pay attention, and we sang, I breathe in your grace, and I breathe out your praise, and I'm thinking, really? How can that be? Because this life sucks. And ever so strangely, in his mysterious love and kindness and grace and never-ending presence, God says, Good, Mike, now I've got you exactly where I want you. And that brings us to where we are this morning.
because we're going to look at Psalm 77 to take an example of wisdom, of poetry from the Bible, and look at a song, a poem, that has four stanzas that take us deeply into this experience of suffering and pain, and in that suffering pain, connecting ever so deeply with God. Psalm 77. I'm going to read it. You can read along in your Bible. You can listen. If you close your eyes, I'll assume you're listening with me, not sleeping. I'm going to read this psalm, and I'm going to pause at the places where the poem itself invites us to pause. And in those pauses, that moment of silence, I'd like you to think, yes, that, that what I just heard, that was a line, that was a sentence, that was a word that makes sense to me in my own pain. So listen, if you will. I cried out to God for help. I cried out to God to hear me. When I was in distress, I sought the Lord at night. I stretched out my hands untiringly, and I would not be comforted. Pause and reflect. Verse 4, you, God, kept my eyes from closing. I was too troubled to speak. I thought about the former days, the years of long ago. I remembered my songs in the night. My heart meditated and my spirit asked, will the Lord reject forever? Will he never show his favor again? Has his unfailing love vanished forever? Has his promise failed for all time? Has God forgotten to be merciful? Has he in anger withheld his compassion? Verse 10, and then I thought, to this I will appeal, the years when the Most High stretched out his right hand, I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your miracles of long ago. I will consider all your works and meditate on all your mighty deeds. Your ways, God, are holy. What God is as great as our God? You are the God who performs miracles. You display your power among the peoples. 
With your mighty arm, you redeemed your people, the descendants of Jacob and Joseph. The waters saw you, God. The waters saw you, and they writhed. The very depths were convulsed. The clouds poured down water. The heavens resounded with thunder. Your arrows of lightning flashed back and forth. Your thunder was heard in the whirlwind. Your lightning lit up the world. The earth trembled and quaked. Your path led through the sea, your way through the mighty waters, though your footprints were not seen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. Let's listen to God's word for us this morning. Psalm 77, if you're following along with Yobel uh, and you're one of maybe one and a half or two people in the group that actually have kept up every single day along the way and not played catch up. But if you were on the schedule according to the app, you would have read this Psalm 77 on March 18th. And if you keep going, uh, we're almost halfway through the year. If you keep going, we're going to read it again on August 20th. We've seen this psalm before as we've been reading. But one of the things that comes to us when we're under waves and waves and waves of pain and suffering is, we say, life is so overwhelming, I just want to, and you can fill in that blank. Life is so overwhelming, I just want to, Entertain myself. Life is so overwhelming. I just want to crawl inside my whiskey bottle. Life is so overwhelming. I just want to ignore everyone in my life. Life is so overwhelming. I just want to curl up and sleep. Life is so overwhelming that I just want to die. Life is so overwhelming that I just want to run. Life is so overwhelming that I want to just leave it all behind. As Randy Stonehill once sang, stop the world, I want to get off. This is too weird, a little too weird for me. And God gives us a way of connecting with him in the middle of all this chaos because he's given us poetry Songs that we can turn to and listen to and sing and recite and read out loud and remind each other about as we go along. Uh, you may not realize it, but of, of the Old Testament in the Bible, in the Old Testament, 75% of what is written here approximately is poetry. poetry. Uh, You may have recently, uh, along with all of us at the beginning of the year, read through Genesis, and you think, well, this is a lot of stories. But embedded in those stories are lots of poetry. The book of Isaiah, 
the prophet Isaiah saying this will happen and that will happen and this is what God is up to. A huge portion of the book of Isaiah is poetry scattered throughout the rest of the books. <clears throat> and we have it here in the Psalms. God has given us poetry because I believe, as the ancients have said, that poetry is a window into the soul. Okay. Um, maybe you found yourself seeking the Lord when you're in distress. Maybe you found yourself wondering how to connect with him. And God says, here is the way. This psalm, this poem, has four stanzas to it. Broken up by the Hebrew word salah, or selah, some would say. We don't know. This is great. I love poetry for this reason. You can't pin it down. It's flexible. It's painting. It's sculpture with words. It invites you to participate. See what you can make of it. See what it can make of you. Salah seems to mean something like, pause here, which is what I did when we read. Think about it. Reflect. Maybe we'll throw in a guitar solo in here, you know, between the verses. So that you have time to be in the music. And these stanzas move in this fashion. And here's what I would love for you to get hold of. And if I could, if I had hours, I would teach you everything I know about Hebrew poetry, barring teaching you Hebrew, because that would take quite a while. So that you could love it as much as I am finding myself loving it. But the... the the stanzas move from the first stanza, which is a stanza of angst, just pure gut, groaning feeling, anxiety, depression, clinical or not clinical is seen in these verses. This crying out, this groaning, this speaking to God in the first stanza. The second stanza moves then out of all that boiling, bubbling, simmering emotion into complaint. The third stanza then moves to a place of surrender. And the final stanza moves to a place of encounter. Okay. And very easily you could begin to conceptualize connecting with God in pain and suffering as shown in this particular psalm, this lament psalm, crying out the movement in my own personal life in each and every one of your experiences, from angst to complaint to surrender to encounter. There's a few of us counselors in the room. How's that for a model? <laughs> for a counseling model, taking 
the people that we care so much about that need the help in the mental health realm, from angst to complaint to surrender to encounter. Think of that as a preaching model. This Sunday's sermon, we'll start with angst. (laughs) Then we'll move to complaints. Then we'll move to surrender. And finally, we can move to encounter with God. It's a significant movement, though, because we so often want to jump from, I feel overwhelmed, to encounter with God. And I don't believe Scripture teaches us that we can effectively and truthfully and authentically move by leaping over. That God says, first, you must pour out your angst to me. Second, you must pour out your complaint to me. Third, you must then surrender. And fourth, we will have an encounter. So let's look at these stanzas. First stanza is found in verses 1 through 3. I pour out my frustration. I pour out my angst. Notice that the psalm starts with these words, I cried out to God. I cried out to God. There's your first little free lesson in Hebrew poetry Hebrew poetry is not built on rhyming words, as is so often English poetry. Like English poetry, it's built on meter, on rhythm, but you can't do that unless you can read the Hebrew Bible, which I highly encourage. As my Hebrew professor used to tell us, you better learn it, because that's the language we're going to be speaking in heaven. Uh, Now, I haven't think that was an empty threat. Okay. So there is some rhythm, there is some meter, there's no rhyme, but Hebrew poetry is built on parallelism. Saying something and then in a following line, sometimes immediately following, sometimes further down in the stanza, saying it again in a different way. This particular First two lines, I cried to God for help. I cried to God to hear me. Uh, Actually, in the Hebrew text, it goes like this. My voice to God, and I cry my voice to God. Get hold of this. When you feel angst, don't keep it to yourself. When you feel angst, don't just tell it to your spouse. When you feel that overwhelmed, anxious, dread, depression, don't just tell it to your therapist. When you feel that deep sense of life is falling apart and chaotic, don't just tell it to your brothers and sisters at church. Tell all of them, if you will, but... Also tell it to God. Because look, who else can actually do anything about it? Your mother can't do anything about it. 
Your wife can't do anything about it. Your best friend can't do anything to really change it. Your therapist, I hate to tell you, um, but authenticity always reigns, nothing but the truth. Your therapist can't, working from the outside, do anything about it. You can't do anything about it simply by bucking up and strengthening your inner life. Who else would you express it to? You know, when Jesus said some confusing things and and Peter and the disciples who were, you know, always his PR people, you know, they're like, yeah, Jesus, you really shouldn't say this stuff because it confuses people, it makes them angry. And Jesus said, well, do you guys want to leave too? And Peter, in one of those few moments when he got it right, said, well, Lord, where else will we go? I'd kind of like to leave you, but where else would we go? And that's what's going on here. But notice in the angst, I cried out to God. I cried out for him to hear me. I was in distress. I sought the Lord. At night, I stretched out my hands, but that was ceaseless. Okay, this is like, I'm praying to him, but nothing's happening. I have my hands up all night, and there's no answer. I couldn't be comforted. I remembered you, God, and then I love this in verse 3. I remembered you, God, and literally, when I remembered you, I just made a noise. The English translators came up with groaning. Yeah, that's it, but it's just... When I thought of you, God, I just made a noise. In the angst step of looking at our pain and suffering, there is no satisfaction. We're not at yet a place of solution. We are simply being honest and expressing and speaking out. And in that time, when I remember God, and all I've got for God is making a noise, and my soul, my inner self, my psyche refuses to be comforted. And let me look you in the eye and tell you how many times I have stopped there. Sometimes I have found my way into the angst, and instead of continuing the movement, really letting the angst have its flow, and moving on to two, three, and four, I have stopped there. But God invites us to go on. Because as the second stanza starts, which runs from verse 4 to verse 9, now we'll get into the complaint. You and me, God, are going to have it out now. The first is just the whining. Now we're going to get specific. Does this sound like Job, by the way, the book of Job? 
Job starts with angst. And then his friends are all diving in, and they're kind of raising some of this complaint, and, and Job actually jumps into that as well. Ultimately comes to surrender and then encounter with God. It's the same flow. But listen to verse 4, where the poet says, You kept my eyes from closing. God, you and me are going to have it out because the the literal picture here in the Hebrew poetry is, God, you grabbed onto my eyelids and you wouldn't let them close. You held on. I wanted to sleep. You wouldn't even let me sleep. (laughs) One of the major signs of clinical depression is either the inability to sleep or on the flip side of that, sleeping too much. Anxiety, same thing. In the depth of this, the poet finally says, God, this just doesn't seem like you. And then like so many of us, the poet kind of engages in the myth of nostalgia. I remember all those long nights of playing music and life was so happy. Um... It's a great place to go, fantasy, the imagination of the past. Was everything really so good back then? But the poet, in taking on God, in asking, in in lodging his complaint, says, this just doesn't seem like you, God. I thought about the former days. I remembered that I used to sing at night. Now I don't anymore. And my heart ran these thoughts round and round, and I ended up saying, will the Lord reject me forever? Will he never show his favor again? Has his unfailing love vanished forever? Has his promise failed for all time? The complaint ultimately comes down to the poet being willing to look God in the eye and to say, are you really who you say you are? This doesn't seem like you. It begins to get personal. I thought you were God who made promises. Are you not that? I I thought I knew what you were up to. What are you doing? How long will it be until I see the end of this? And again, who else can we complain to? Uh, You can write your congressman, your representative. They are not going to be able to remove pain and suffering from your life. Don't know if you realize that. Who else can we complain to? But it takes this level of honesty in my angst, this level of personal, face-to-face, wrestling honesty with God before I can come finally to the place of surrender.
Because there's a reality that moves throughout God's world since the Garden of Eden. When the people said, the man and woman said, on behalf of all of us, I would rather be my own God. I would like to know everything and define everything and describe everything and control everything. And ever since that moment, God set in motion the plan that he had for all the ages to say, unless you die, you cannot live. If you came in wondering what this board is up here. Here in the death, I live. From where we're sitting, or from where we came in, all I could see was the top couple of lines there. Here in the death. I thought maybe this is the name of of the church band or something. What band are you in here in the death? Uh, Thankfully, there's a little more to it, but here in the death of Christ, I live. We're about to see it in baptism and hear about it. Unless I die, I cannot live. When we look at someone struggling and we're prone to say things to them like you have to take responsibility... You need to work on this. You need to change your behavior. You need to change the people you're hanging around with. You need to read different books. You need to watch different movies. You need to change who you're listening to. You need to change what you're thinking. All of that may be wise and good advice, but the thing we most need to say to ourselves and to share with each other in these times is... Yes. In the words of Paul in 2 Corinthians 1 9, these things are happening, so we will not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. So when you're overwhelmed with pain and suffering, cheer up and come and die. That should get your attention. Cheer up and come and die. Surrender. Boy, I learned this in AA. I had it figured out many times. I knew how to control my own self. I kept imagining that I could manage things without surrendering. I could change certain behaviors. I could change a few ways of thinking. I could adjust my approach to life. I could work on, of course, my thing, you know, just change the people around me and I'll be fine. If only my sons didn't have mental illnesses, if they would just get their lives right and quit going in the hospital. If I only could live in a time when I don't have to call the sheriff to make sure my son is safe. If only, if only, if only. And when it finally took hold, it was profoundly 
biblical, we admitted that we were powerless over alcohol, that our lives had become unmanageable. You know, and I, I used to hear that, and I think, well, that's good. I'll, I'll, I'll give up. I'll, I'll admit that I don't have control, and then I'll go through this program, and then I'll be fixed, and then I can have control again. And yet, the poet, I'd love to read all, I'd love to recite all 12 steps to you, but, you know, it's not the place. You can join me at another meeting if you'd like to do that. (laughs) And from that point of surrender, which gets very personal at the end of verse 15, With your, I'm sorry, in verse uh, 14, you are the God who performs miracles. You display your power among the peoples. God, you do all these great things out there. And then it gets personal, verse 15, with your mighty arm, you redeemed your people. Surrender allows us to take an honest look at ourselves and say, God, yeah, you are the one who takes care of all kinds of people. And oh, by the way, God, you're the one who takes care of your people, of whom I am one. And that leads finally to the final stanza of encounter. We don't have the time Uh, to pull it entirely apart. Let me just make a couple comments. First of all, notice that the stanza, verses 16 through 20, as it wraps up in encounter with God, focuses very much on seeing God in the world which he has created. The seas, the clouds, the lightning, the thunder. Okay. If you're struggling to connect with God in times of pain and suffering, get your Bible. If it's too hard to read, which it well can be, get an audio Bible. Step outside and look at a rose bloom outside. Take a quick drive out to Armstrong Woods and walk through God's big trees. Head out to the coast and listen to the crashing of the waves. If none of those are possible, stare at a house plants. You see, God has created these things so that we can see Him. Look at them. Listen to the words and look at them. Encounter God. But notice where he is encountered, specifically in the words of this poem. The words repeated, the waters, the waters, the depths, the clouds poured water. Your path led through the sea. Your way led through the mighty waters. Don't miss this. Poetry is word pictures. And the painting here 
is a world-class masterpiece. Because the picture that the poet is painting, we go water, water, water. Yeah, yeah, I like water. I drink, you know, water. I swim in the water. You have to know that in that day, the water, the sea, the depths is the picture of depth. Uh, I'm sorry, depth, yes, death. Of death. Water isn't always a positive picture, especially when it combines the sea and the depths. It's death. I had to die so that I can live. The encounter is when I realize that God walks on top of death. When I step into the raging sea, I sink to the bottom like Jonah. I cry out. I had sunk clear down to the gates at the bottom of the sea that open up where people get sucked into the realm of the dead. And God walks there. And he speaks there. And he commands there. And he is at work there. Watch the shift from angst. Who is the focus? Me. To encounter who is the focus? God. I know I said it before, but I'm closing now, really. Two things to notice. The poet's problem is not solved. We never read, and then all my pain and suffering went away. And we lived happily ever after. And we do know that the sufferings of this world can't even be compared to the life in the new heavens and the new earth that God has prepared for us. Secondly, notice that it says that God walks on top of the waters and yet his footsteps are not seen. Please be aware that you may not immediately see God. And don't get the impression that Asaph, how'd you like to be Asaph? David, the king, just the greatest musician who's ever lived, and you're the court musician? It's like, (laughs) scary, intimidating. I don't think Asaph wrote this while he was still angsting. Keep in mind the poems are written probably long afterwards when there's been time and space. So music team, you can come and cry out, (laughs) engage us in calling out to the Lord. Father, thank you for your word, which is so very real and so honest and so true. Your word, which speaks very directly and down to earth to us. No holds barred. When we are in pain and suffering, as many of us are, let us meet with you. Crying out, complaining, surrendering, and encountering you directly. For Jesus' sake, 
and with your Holy Spirit's power. Amen.